Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. See, this time I wanted to do a political episode because as I was researching current events and preparing for my historical stuff, I um, ran upon a very interesting story done by our great colleagues at Medusa, and I want to bring this one to you because I consider it very interesting and kind of a heartwarming and cautionary tale. You see, uh, in Europe, we have this refugee crisis and everything, but it's not just here and in the EU. I want to talk about refugees today, but this time about Russia. You see, it's about people who have nowhere to turn. Because more than 3 million international tourists visited Russia during the 2018 FIFA World Cup. But not all of them were there for the soccer. Some hope to apply for refugee status in the country because they face life-threatening dangers back home. The Russian government rejected their applications for asylum. After the tournament ended, several thousand people were deported. However, even now, a year after the World Cup, some people are still trying to defend their right to live in Russia. Some of them escaped war, others escaped terrorist groups, and still others escaped religious persecution. In Russia, they encountered new hardships, trouble finding work, trouble finding housing, and trouble with the law. And uh, our great colleagues inside Russia, Medusa, they managed to spoke with a couple of refugees here about why they came to Russia, and how they have survived the last year. And so I would like to give you their stories, because this is an interesting situation, unexpected one, and I really didn't think that something like this could or would happen. But here we go. First one is Said. He's 28, and he's a Yemeni citizen. And here's his story, quote, I'm a citizen of Yemen, but I have never lived there. My father moved to Saudi Arabia a long time ago, and he still works there in a wedding fashion store. We have a big family. I have seven brothers and sisters. My mother doesn't work. She takes care of things at home. In Saudi Arabia, life was not very good for us. There's racism everywhere there. People treat Yemenis like shit. They didn't think we're human. We have to carry our documents with us at all times in case we're checked. It's practically impossible to get a decent job. And if one of us starts making good money, all of a sudden, and say, buys an expensive car... Police officers go up to that person on the street and start asking how they were able to afford it. 
At the same time, we can't go back to Yemen. There's a war there. I graduated from school in Saudi Arabia and then left to study in India, just because it's cheap. We could afford it, unlike a Saudi education. I spent four years in India, majored in systems administration, and went back to Saudi Arabia. But I couldn't find a job in my field. Nobody wanted to take someone from Yemen. All the good jobs in the country are reserved for citizens of Saudi Arabia. In the end, I couldn't find decent work at all, so, like my father, I started selling clothes out of a little shop. Then, another problem came up. According to Saudi law, an immigrant can't stay in the country unless their employer or some other adult Saudi citizen vouches for them. Nobody wanted to sponsor me. I had no choice. They could have deported me, so I started thinking about where could I go. The simplest thing was to go to Russia. The World Championship was going on, and unlike in Europe, I didn't need a visa to go to Russia. You just had to make a fan ID. And back then, in Saudi Arabia, there were a lot of companies that arranged trips to Russia. You could go there for soccer matches, or just because. People who were in the same situation as me said you could get asylum there. In the end, I paid about 9,000 rubles, which is about $140, for a fan passport. Fan passports were complimentary for those who bought match tickets. And in early July, I flew to Russia. Of course, I was not planning to watch any soccer. At the time, I knew practically nothing about Russia, but I had friends here. When I was studying in India, I met a lot of Russians. There are a lot of them in Goa. I made friends with some of them, and I even dated a girl there, but we broke up eventually. In Moscow, I got settled in a cheap hostel on the outskirts for 400 rubles, about $6.20 per night. I still live there now. I live in a room with seven other people, and I have done my best to get used to it. I have a bed and nothing else. Practically nobody in the hostel speaks English, so I can't tell you anything about the people that I live with. We only say hello and goodbye, because I don't basically speak any Russian. I tried to learn, but you have a very complicated language. For a while, I was living in Russia without any kind of normal social life, but then I found meetups on Facebook for English speakers and foreigners in Moscow. Thank God, now at least I have somebody to talk to. I didn't have any savings I could take with me to Russia, so I had to find work right away. I had to pay for the hostel so I wouldn't end up homeless. It turned out to be very difficult to find work. I don't have any documents and I didn't speak Russian. In the end, one of the people who works at the hostel helped me. His name is Guram and I think God sent him to me. All the places I found work in Moscow I found through him. In my first year in Russia, I've had a lot of different jobs. I still haven't been able to find a steady one, so all of my income sources are temporary. For example, I have been an extra in Russian movies and TV shows for a few times. I make money pretty often by being in studio audiences. I've learned the word applause extremely well. They don't pay much, 700 rubles, about $10.85 a day, but it's enough to pay for the hostel. I've also done manual labor. I installed tiles in some building in the city. My life basically looks like this. Make money, give it to the hostel, make more money, pay for the hostel again. I take anything I can get. When I can't find work for a few days, Guram lends me money so I can pay for housing. Thank God I haven't landed on the street this year even once. I definitely don't want to live on the street in this climate. It would be impossible. Almost everything I make goes toward housing. When you add in transportation costs, there is very little left. I mostly eat food from the fixed-price convenience store. Usually, I buy the cheapest ramen noodles. They only cost around 5 rubles, which is uh, 8 cents, per pack. Sometimes I don't even have enough money for that. At one point, I didn't eat for a week. I only drank tea. Once the police came to the hostel, somebody stole something from somewhere. The police dealt with me too. They took me to the station and then there was a trial where they decided I should be deported. 
Now, I'm appealing, but I know that it'll probably be impossible to overturn the decision. Human rights advocates have told me they can't help. Like every other human being on earth, I don't know what's going to happen next in my life. They'll probably deport me to Yemen, where there is a war on, and I'll have to fight. Anything is possible, but what can I do? Nobody can help me with Russian law being the way it is. Run away to Europe? It won't work. Borders are no joke. Despite it all, I am happy now. I have a roof over my head and I have food. That is enough. I like Moscow, I like the people. For example, unlike in Saudi Arabia, I haven't encountered racism in Russia even once. Of course, I would like to stay here, I don't know why the law doesn't allow it. When I got here, I thought I would find work and live like an ordinary person, like everybody else. But it has not worked out that way. My family doesn't know what I'm doing in Russia. I tell my mom that everything is alright. She has seven other kids and lots of other things to worry about. I am happy and I do not regret coming to Russia. I could not have stayed in Saudi Arabia. And I'm not the problem. Nobody. Nobody leaves countries where people live well. Obi. Cameroonian citizen, 19. And uh, the name has been changed to protect the source. I grew up in a normal family. Well, unlike some families in Africa, my father only had one wife. And four kids, including two really little ones. We lived in a little village that's part of a pretty big city in the northern part of the country. We were doing alright. I was studying law. But in 2016, Boko Haram terrorists attacked a village next to ours. In my family, we talked about whether we should leave right then or wait for a while, but it was too late. The terrorists attacked our village and our house. A group of people broke in and shot my mom and dad. I managed to run out of the house, which was already on fire. I thought my entire family was killed, so I ran. I ran for a really long time. The only thing driving me forward was a desire to survive. I don't know exactly how long I ran, but at some point I ran up to a humanitarian bus where they gave out food and medicine to people who needed it. I told them about the attack on my village and they took me in. I spent a few days on that bus. Sometimes we were parked somewhere and sometimes we were driving. In the end... We got to a charity organization's building. I can't tell you what it is called. At first, they let me in, but then some guys came up to me with joints in their mouths and said I should get out. Supposedly because I was taking up a spot that would go to a woman or a child. I left and started running again. I was always running because everyone in Cameroon knows that Boko Haram has eyes and ears everywhere. Boko Haram doesn't just let people go. You can't just run away from them and live in peace. I got to the next big city and found my friend, whose family is safe. We decided that I had to leave Cameroon. I left for Chad, because you do not need a visa to go there, but Boko Haram attacked there too before long. My friend's family really helped me. They made me a passport to replace the old one I had left in my village during the attack, and they bought me tickets to Russia and a fan ID. In July 2018, I left. The only thing I knew about the country was that it might be hard for me in Russia because of racism. But I was counting on the idea that I would mostly be able to live here in peace. I was lucky that I met a group of people from Africa right away in the airport. I went with them to a hostel and rented myself a bunk for 400 rubles, again about $6.20 per day. Through people I met at the hostel, I started working at the supermarket sorting produce. They paid 500 rubles, which is $7.75 per day. The money was barely enough for me to eat, but then they stopped paying me altogether and I stopped working there. That happened several times. 
I found work, they paid me for a few days, and then they stopped. At one place, some other Africans and I even went on a strike. We refused to work until they paid us. The owner of the store caved, but then he fined us 1,600 rubles, about $24.80 for striking, which was our salary for a few days' work. It has always been really hard to find work. In the winter, there wasn't much to choose from, and I had to clean snow. I only held on for a couple of days. It was really hard. Maybe I am just not suited to this climate. Now, I live in a two-room apartment with other Africans. Some of them also came here on a fan ID. There are eight of us, and there used to be nine. I pay about 7,000 rubles, which is $108 a month for rent, and I make 14 on 15,000 rubles per month, which is about $225. I work in an Italian restaurant near the Kitai Gorod station. Since I don't have an official status, they force me to work from morning till night, and they pay me half as much as they would pay me if I were a Russian citizen. Generally, I haven't dealt with much racism. If you look decent, nobody in Moscow goes out of their way to mess with you. Now, I am trying to get temporary asylum in Russia, at least. I know I can't go back, they could kill me. But the migration services refused to take my documents. I lost my fan ID. So, essentially, I do not have any documents that say how I got into the country. Now, I am appealing that rejection in court. I don't know much at all about Russia or Russian life because I don't know the language. I don't know how people live and what they do. But I don't blame the government for my situation. I think that, all in all, Russia is a very good country. It is very different from Cameroon. There is lots of corruption there, people live in poverty, and the president has been in power for a really long time. Not long ago, I found out that the attack on our village did not kill my whole family, only my dad. My mom, my sister, and my two brothers survived, but then they resettled people from my village in Nigeria because there were risks of more terrorist attacks, and now I do not know what's going on with them. Getting in touch with them and seeing them again someday is my biggest dream. I hope it will come true someday, though I do not know in which country. Yusuf, Gambian citizen, 24. I grew up in a religious family. For the first 10 years of my life, I did not know my dad. He worked in Saudi Arabia. His job was in an Islamic organization that builds mosques around Africa, runs religious schools, stuff like that. Then he came back to Gambia and became an imam. My mom has a small business selling things her business partner buys in Dubai. My life was pretty good, and I had no reason to complain. People in Gambia are very open and sincere, and I liked it there. I went to a Catholic school, but I was Muslim myself, and that did not cause any problems until around 7th grade. Then one of the teachers asked me to join a Christian seminar, but my dad did not let me, and he moved me to a different school, a non-religious one. I graduated, and then I spent two years in a Muslim religious school when I studied the Quran. Then I went back to a normal college and studied management. I wasn't able to graduate because of the conflict with my family that led me to leave Gambia. The thing is that in January of 2017, President Yahya Jamme, who had led Gambia for a long time, refused to recognize the results of the last election. He had lost. He started sending anyone who criticized that decision to jail and trying with all his might to hold on to power. The majority of Gambia's population is Muslim. And in 2015, Jamme officially declared Gambia to be an Islamic republic. So the religious community's reaction to this whole situation was very important. But the Muslim leaders didn't say anything against Jamme. The Christian ones did, though. 
People tried to pay them off, but they refused and say they couldn't betray the truth. In the end, Jamme lost power. International pressure forced him to leave. I was really inspired by the way the Christians acted. And then, one of my friends from college invited me to go to church with him. I really liked it there. I liked the people who were so dedicated to serving God. I liked the fact that they treated me warmly right away, as though they had known me for a long time. I liked the fact that the people at church always told the truth. I started going to church, and I told my parents that I was taking extra courses at the college. I couldn't tell them the truth. My father has always believed that converting from Islam to Christianity is unacceptable, that people who do it deserve to die. He said that to me several times. I went to services regularly, and for a while everything was okay. But then my parents found out where I was going. My father was very angry, and he beat me. I ran away from home and lived with one of my Christian friends. Then my sister sent me a text. The Muslim society my dad led had decided to punish me. She didn't know what the punishment would be, but my father had said he had to set an example as the leader of the group. I realized that my father wanted to kill me. He and my brother went looking for me and came into the church, but I managed to hide. I realized that I couldn't live that way much longer. The pastors said I should leave the country. The Muslim communities in various cities have very close ties to one another, and it would not have been easy to find me. At first, they sent me to Senegal, which borders Gambia, but then they changed their minds for some reason. They said I would be going to Russia. I don't know why they made that decision, but they told me I would be able to live normally in Russia. There are African churches there. That was all I knew about Russia back then. I trusted the pastors entirely because I saw their work in the church. They got all the documents I needed and gave me $150. I flew to Moscow. I started having problems as soon as I got to the airport. Nobody spoke English. I couldn't figure out how to get to the city. In the end, a man helped me. He put me in a taxi and sent it to a hotel he knew. I paid 500 rubles, which is $7.75 for the taxi, and 2,500 more, $38.75, for a night in the hotel. I realized that I would run out of money quickly, so I went to the police. I was under the impression that the government should know who I was and why I had come to Russia. But at the police station, they just gave me the address for the Civic Assistance Community, which is a migrant aid organization. There, I met a guy from Lebanon who told me there were a lot of Africans living near the Dmitry Donskoy Boulevard metro station. I went there, and I really did see a soccer field where there were a lot of black guys, and they were playing. For a few months, I lived in my Lebanese friend's apartment. He really helped me, but then the police came, and he was deported. They took me to their station too, but they let me go. I had a document saying my application for temporary asylum was under consideration. The police came again very recently in April. We were taken to the station again, and they held me there for 27 hours without food or anything else. They forced me to sign some kind of a paper. They grabbed me and showed me, and I tried to explain to them that I don't know Russian and I won't sign anything. In the end, one of the other guys who was arrested, he was also from Africa, said that in Russia, the police can do whatever they want to me, and no one would even find out about it. Then I signed everything, and they took my fingerprints. They let us go, but I still do not know what I signed. Almost immediately after that, the owner of the apartment where we lived came in with the police and said we had to go. For four days I lived in the street and spent nights in the doorways of apartment buildings. I had no money to pay for housing. I don't have a job. I'm scared to go outside when I don't have to. I'm scared that the police will stop me and do something to me. In the end, I got help from the church I started going to in Moscow. Someone from the church's leadership found me in a spot in an apartment in the Sherbinka neighborhood where other Africans were living, and he paid for my housing. 
but, but he could not help me indefinitely. I don't know what I'm going to do in a month. I don't even have money for food. My neighbors feed me sometimes, and sometimes the church gives me a little. That is a huge help. My application for temporary asylum has already been rejected, so there is really no hope that I will be able to stay in Russia. I can't keep living like this and suffering like this. I just want a normal life. I'm ready to leave. Not for Gambia. My father could find me there. For some other African country. I don't know how much the ticket will cost, but I don't have any money for it anyway. That is my main problem now. Before I leave Russia, I want to learn more about the country where I'm going to live. I want to choose it consciously. I've learned my lesson. I don't want to go through what I've gone through in Russia. In Russia, nothing went the way I thought it would. Things did not work out for me here, but I don't blame anyone. It's really difficult, but it's experience. God gave me this experience, and I have to live through it. It is my fate. Nothing could have gone any differently. And then, there is a comment by Yevgeny Yastrebov, consultant for migration issues from the previously mentioned Civic Assistance Committee. He says that there were many, many people who came to Russia on this Pan-ID system, which was basically a system which allowed you to enter Russia, well, without a visa. And then these people tried to stay there. Most of them came from Africa, more than anywhere else really, and especially Nigeria. Judging by what applicants have told to this committee, a lot of people in Africa made it into a business. They sold these fan IDs and said everything would be wonderful in Russia. They said it's a European country that is willing to accept refugees and help them. And right now, you can go there without a visa if you just have a fan passport. People who had landed in really difficult situations believed that and they paid up. Sometimes they paid a lot, $5,000 or $10,000 to go to Russia. They couldn't get a Schengen visa even for that kind of money. Unlike a fan passport, you just can't buy those. Once they had spent some time in Russia, people started to realize that things weren't the way they have been told to expect. For example, they went to migrant services and officials there just refused to take in their asylum applications. That's a very widespread practice, and uh, then a lot of people came to this organization. And he told them what their options were, and to be honest, they essentially did not have a shot at getting asylum. Right now, Russia is trying with all its might not to recognize people as refugees. Only 572 officially recognized refugees currently live in Russia. Even getting temporary asylum is practically out of the question. The law says an applicant can receive it if it would be dangerous for them to return to their homeland. But Russian migrant services are biased toward refusal from the beginning, and they look for any reason to make that happen. Nobody actually checks a potential refugee's story. For example, for example, this organization had an applicant whose rejection notice cited the tourist website that talked about how there were marvelous beaches and vacation opportunities in his home country. And uh, getting from Russia to Europe is also practically out of the question. All the borders are closed. You can try to do it illegally, but on the border with Finland alone, they've already caught hundreds of people with fan IDs. Oh, by the way, uh, this again on the border with Latvia, they also catch people trying to migrate in the EU from Russia illegally. For the most part, they have been Vietnamese, because Vietnamese people come to work here in our fashion industry here, but lately we have also, also had people from Russia coming in with just these fan IDs which, you know, they don't usually get in, and that is a problem. A substantial number of applicants told the organization that rumors are spreading among migrants that they can try to escape to Europe through Murmansk. But when people go there, local taxi drivers find them and promise to take them to the border before driving them off to a random place where the police are already waiting. Yeah, this is uh, the point here, because up in 
Norway, they now have forbidden people to cross borders on bikes because the border is not allowed to be crossed without a vehicle. And a lot of people coming from the Russian-Norway border basically just bought bikes, moved across the border, ditched them, and tried to move away. Well, now they stopped that too. It's a pretty bad story, really. As a result of all of this situation, the overwhelming majority of people with fat IDs have already been deported, which is about 5,000 people who had arrived in Russia during the World Cup, who, by the way, remained there illegally by the beginning of 2019. Another fraction is still in some stage or another of the asylum application process, but the end point is basically predetermined. The only way to get refugee status here is by sheer luck. Nothing depends on your own study. You can only hope you submitted your documents at just the right moment, the moment where migrant services will have to prove to someone that they are effective and that they do grant asylum sometimes. We have had instances where, you know, several applicants in a row receive refugee status, even though they were immediately turned down just before. That's from the organization again. And of course, when the organization tells them about the situation in Russia, a lot of people who turn to them for help are shocked. See, they thought it was a European country that would help them. Apparently, according to this organization, one man even got down on his knees in front of, of this person and uh, asked him to give him the documents he needed. He tried to explain that he would gladly do it, but he does not have the power. The organization fights for every applicant in the courts everywhere, but it is extremely difficult. Every year, the situation for refugees in Russia only gets worse. Before 2018, for example, if their applicants were rejected in Russia, they could go to the United Nations refugee agencies, and they could try to get asylum there, but, and move to another country, but the chances there were better than in Russia. Of course, these people can try to stay in Russia legally and bribe police officers their whole lives, but that's very dangerous. Ultimately, the way things turned out is that people who wanted to improve their lives live in Russia or possibly move to another country ended up in a situation where they essentially have nowhere to turn. For most of them, sadly, it is probably easier now to return to their home countries, even if they're under threat, and try to move from there than it would be for them to stay in Russia. Hey guys, Annette here. Glad to have you with us for another episode of The Eastern Border. As you might know if you follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Discord, our show is growing. If you haven't already, this is the perfect time to join our community, as we will soon be delivering exclusive stories from Ukraine and give you an in-depth analysis of what is going on over there. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by going to our Patreon page on patreon.com slash the eastern border. A big thanks to all of those who are already donating. The show would not be possible without you guys. That's it from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. But besides these cautionary tales and, you know, a food for thought, there's another group of people who are actively trying to get into Russia, but they're actively trying to become Russian citizens. Since April 24th, the residents of the self-declared Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics have been able to receive Russian citizenship through a kind of a simplified process. On May the 1st, this option was made available to all Ukrainian citizens with Russian residence permits. A center for issuing Russian passports to DNR and LNR residents has already opened in Russia's Rostov region. And since early May, people have flocked to these offices hoping to, you know, get the, this Russian passport, even though the process laid out by Moscow requires them to submit their paperwork where they live. And I'm gonna go and check on this myself, but again, this comes from the Russian news, because these guys went there and talked to some people about how it is in Luhansk, and about why this dash for Russian citizenship is happening, and why people in Ukraine's Donbass want this so badly. So, I'm gonna go and try to check this myself, but this is the current study, which is interesting, because I wanted to put these two studies in contrast of one another and uh, try to make some sense of it all, because they tell very different attitudes, I think, and uh, they're kind of interesting. Apparently, the problem of the people is that if you go to this Rostov region thing, then people are being sent back to their homes. The community center is apparently surrounded by a fence and nobody is allowed inside without permission. It's a restricted area, two police officers apparently explained, standing by in their patrol car to the journalist who went there. They say the center is closed to the public, but people show up every day, but apparently in the morning of May the 8th, when people were, were visiting the building, there was nobody waiting outside. The officers say they offer advice to these people through the fence. Quote, Members of the public ask why their documents aren't accepted here, and they want to know the processing timetable, says Anatoly Ignatenko, a senior officer at the Migration Department office in Novoshkatinsk. The executive order, he adds, but still no timetable. Ignatenko says everyone who wants Russian citizenship should get it eventually, in theory at least, but they're supposed to submit their applications at the Interior Ministry's Migration Department, not at the center issuing their passports. We're here as a transmitting site, Anatoly Ignatenko continues. LNR representatives and security officials bring us the documents, we receive them, and then pass them up the chain to the Migration Department's head office in Rostov. Ignatienko doesn't say how many citizenship applications have already been processed. Apparently, the office space for the Interior Ministry's Migration Department in Novohachinsk is a two-story brick building with faded paint at 9 Soviet Constitution Street, 10 kilometers, about 6 miles, from the community center in Novaya Sokolov. Alexei and Eleonora, who spoke with journalists and apparently asked them not to release their surnames, say they've come here, not for the first time. They haven't gotten anywhere by speaking to the staff, and now they're waiting to talk to a supervisor. Alexei periodically walks up to each office, checks the posted business hours, and sometimes tries the doorknobs. They're all locked. Alexei is 82 years old. Eleonora is a year older. They were both born in Novoshkatinsk and went to college here together. After graduating, she got married and followed her husband, who apparently was a minor, and they sent him off on assignment in Sovetera, and left for the city of Makayevka in the Donetsk region, where she received Ukrainian citizenship after the USSR collapsed. When her husband died, Eleonora was left on her own. Her only daughter had moved away to Zaporozhye in southeastern Ukraine. Quote, Every five years, the former students would meet on the Don, Alexei says. I kind of asked, where's your husband? 
And she said, he died. My wife had also died. And then I looked at her like, well, how about it? So they started living together in 2006, moving between Novoshkatinsk and Makiyevka, which is east of Donetsk, every three months. But five years ago, when the war broke out in the Donbass region, Eleonora relocated to Russia, and she only returns home for a few days at a time every three months. This is when she started thinking about getting Russian citizenship. Quote, If we sign, the Donetsk Republic will stop paying me the monthly pension for my deceased husband, which is about 8,000 rubles or $125. Eleonora says, Last year I received a DNR passport, but back then there was so much paperwork you needed to submit to acquire Russian citizenship. And now on television, they're painting this wonderful picture, saying 400 people from the Luhansk region have already brought their documents. But what for, if no one understands anything? Quote, They said there is no need to go anywhere. A DNR official comes and checks the documents, just wait three months. But look at this mess. They're not executing the president's orders. There's jack shit and nobody knows anything. This country's surreal, Alexei says angrily. Nina is 72. Four years ago, she left Zhigomorye in the Luhansk region and moved in with her sister in Novoshkatinsk. That's right where they were bombing us to the front line, she says. I got out of there because I was left completely alone. Everyone had died. On top of that, I'm disabled, you see. She holds out a swollen right forearm. It took Nina two and a half years to get a residence permit in Russia, and she expected to wait another five years for a Russian citizenship. But President Putin's executive order means she might get it in just three months. Like other Ukrainians with Russian residence permits, both temporary and long-term, Nina has to apply for Russian citizenship where she lives. In their case, that's Novoshkatinsk. But Nina doesn't know this, and she has been unable to speak to anyone working in the migration department. Officials tell her that the office isn't receiving visitors today, even though the blue sign of the building's entrance says otherwise. Visitors have been trying to get answers from each other for a while. Where do we go? To Luhansk, Donetsk, or Novaya Sokolov? Which documents do we bring? But most people leave more confused when they arrived, only to return on Monday. Novoshkatinsk isn't far from Russia's border, so-called border, with the LNR. The quickest route to Luhansk runs 124 kilometers, around 77 miles, through the Dolzhansky checkpoint, but locals often avoid the bad roads here and go around through the Izvarino checkpoint. From there, it's a straight shot to Luhansk along Highway M04. Depending on the traffic, you might spend anywhere from 30 minutes to several hours at the checkpoint. Frequent travelers say there was once a time when you could pass without waiting in line in exchange for a, quote, donation to the LNR. When this option disappeared, people living in towns closest to the border started selling places in the line. Locals would also come to Russia to buy cheaper gasoline, but that practice largely ended when the cost of fuel in Russia and LNR became roughly the same. To avoid getting stuck in long lines at the border, drivers now use Vkontakte, a Russian social network, to track the congestion at checkpoints. Travelers post updates about how many cars are in line at any given time, so others can decide if they'd rather take a longer route to another checkpoint. Two years ago, you could still see the destroyed houses and artillery damage in fences along the road from Izvarnia to Luhansk. Apparently, today, evidence of this violence is gone. The bus stops have been repainted, the pavement and homes in the area have been tidied up, and the only reminders of the war are an enormous billboard showing a humanitarian aid truck and the words, Thank you, Russia, and a memorial complex atop a small hill dedicated to the so-called defenders of the Donbass. Then, the story continues when... On May the 7th, volunteers arrive at the memorial outside Sorokya for apparently a Saturday of cleanup work. Women in blue jackets sweep the area and prune the flower beds. 67-year-old Lyubov Khachenko reports the monument was built using public donations and her family-owned sausage clip manufacturing business, Donpak, has looked after the site for the past three years. When the war began, Khachenko says, supermarket shelves emptied of everything but napkins. Pharmacies also ran out of supplies and even the cash registers suddenly failed. 
I cried every time a humanitarian aid shipment arrived, she recalls. It was only thanks to Russia that we started getting goods from Russia and Belarus. Kachenko says people in the Donbass have nothing to begrudge for the past five years, and they're very grateful. She doesn't think of Russia as the aggressor, though she admits she was scared in 2014. You walked around and there were soldiers everywhere. My daughter came under fire. I went out in gunfire for conifers and seedlings. They were shooting and there we were planting trees. It made you laugh and introduced you to tears, but what could you do? We didn't stop work at the factory, and we survived. Kachenko says that she was happy to learn that Elena residents will be able to become Russian citizens. Of course, this step by Putin is especially heartening for us. We have been living in uncertainty for five years now. Because the Luhansk Republic isn't officially recognized, Khachenko had to send her daughter to live with her grandmother in Kharkiv, where she's studying at the Ukrainian school that will be able to provide her with a valid diploma. With her daughter abroad, Khachenko and her husband can't get an LNR international passport, though they need these documents to fly to China for work. She says she doesn't want to move to Ukraine because she's afraid of, quote, falling in with someone who's dishonest. Tkachenko's company now only works with Russian banks and her products are shipped through Russia to Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. She says her family is wealthy by local standards, but she doesn't reveal their income. According to the LNR Social Policy Ministry, the average monthly salaries in 2017 for local civil servants and healthcare workers reached about 5,700 rubles, which is $77 and $114 respectively. Two years earlier, however, the prices of essential goods within the Donbass spiked an average 50-60% to 60%, according to Human Rights Watch. Since 2015, retirement payments in the LNR and DNR have been steady. Pensions are set to the pre-war Ukrainian levels, but they are paid in rubles. Each month, Tkachenko, for example, receives 3,200 rubles, which is $49. Some people in the region manage to collect two pensions, which requires getting temporary registration on Ukrainian territory. I don't blame them, Tkachenko says. What's 2,000 rubles? <laughs> $31. And after the increase, it's 3,200 rubles. It's very little. Ukrainian state officials say they plan to withhold social benefits from anyone living in the LNR or DNR who obtains a Russian citizenship. According to experts surveyed by the website The Bell, Russia will spend at least 100 billion rubles, which is $5 billion, in additional annual social security payments to the millions of people living in the Donbass. President Putin says the cost will be significantly lower, arguing that 100 billion rubles will fund the expanded pension coverage for several years, not just one. For me, getting Russian citizenship means coming home. My parents were in Russia and my sister stayed, Tkachenko says. We weren't waiting to take part in Ukrainian's presidential election, but of course we're already worried. We'd really like to see relations get better. I have a daughter in Ukraine. I've got in-laws in Ukraine. We talk on the phone. There's absolutely no animosity between us or between the people. The fact that the authorities can't come to a resolution... Now that, that is a separate issue. The Hedeninsky branch of the Luhansk militia isn't the only station in the city, but at least 100 people line up outside on the afternoon of May the 7th. Some stand in the main entrance beside a memorial plaque dedicated to Valtteri Lipinski, who fought with the separatists and died on January the 20th, 2015, but most of the crowd hides from the sun under the tall fir trees. Everyone here wants to apply for an LNR passport. Locals can't get Russian citizenship without one. We could have gotten passports earlier. The LNR started issuing passports in 2015, but we waited until the last minute, explains 18-year-old Katya Bezkaravanlaya, saying that she can still hardly believe that Russian citizenship is within their grasp. Bezkaravanlaya is training in modern dance, and she dreams of leaving Luhansk for St. Petersburg, which she has never seen. I love my city, but there are no prospects here. I can't become a dancer here, she says. Her classmates also want to leave Luhansk. One plans to go to Ukraine, and others to Russia. Getting Russian citizenship does not require renouncing your Ukrainian citizenship, but Bezkaravanlaya says she doesn't need it anymore. I think Russia is better, she says.
Before submitting their documents, people have to wait in the longest and slowing moving of all lines to be fingerprinted. They say everyone today will get through in time. Yelena, 45, says this. She was born and raised in Luhansk, but then she moved to Nizhny Novgorod in 2015. I had to save my child. Yelena already has Russian citizenship, but she is in line for her elderly parents. If they wanted to move, they would have done it a long time ago. They've lived here throughout the blockade and all the shelling, but you can't compare now to 2014. The Republic is slowly recovering. The grocery stores are packed with food, they're paying some kind of pensions again, and the prices generally are the same as in Russia. Everyone understands perfectly that people in Luhansk and across the Donbass are set on uniting with Russia. I think it's the next step. At least people here hope so. Today isn't 62-year-old Alexander's first attempt to get an LNR passport. In 2015, he was told to keep his Ukrainian documents after the office ran out of forms. That's when he says he first got the idea to become a Russian citizen. Before the war, his father-in-law left him a house in the Rostov region's Tarakovsky district. When he saw the long lines at the passport center in Russia, however, he quickly abandoned the idea. At the migration department in Tarasovsky, there were three times more people than here, he says. He apparently had to get up at five in the morning to catch the bus. Even there, he arrived at six and only half the line went through. But he wants to apply for Russian citizenship. He states that, quote, we are brotherly people, we are one. It's no picnic in Russia either, it's the same life. Whether you're here or there, end quote. And the journalists report, again, from being inside there, that apparently, while they were there, they saw a crowd just as big outside Luhansk's migration service office, but the people there are waiting to apply for Russian citizenship. A young man loudly reads out the numbers of those who can now submit their paperwork, but most have given up and gone home, so only two or three people come forward of the five numbers called. 65-year-old Ludmilla sits near the entrance in a folding chair. She's been here since 5 in the morning, but she first got in line previous day on May the 6th when the office started accepting applications for Russian citizenship. Her number is 435. Ludmilla's grandparents died in 2006, leaving her their apartment in the Krasnodar region. Since then, she's been trying to get a temporary residence permit in Russia. Quote, Oddly enough, only the war helped. When it all started, everyone came to stay with me in the Krasnodar region. My daughter was living with her boyfriend. He went to fight in the militia, and later he got Russian citizenship. Because, according to Russian law, foreign citizens who have participated in armed conflicts are ineligible for Russian citizenship. When he moved in with them, he and Ludmila's daughter got married, and they finally granted this temporary residence permit. Before, they told her that private property does not give you grounds for becoming a citizen of this country. But this is my historical homeland, she says. She continues that it is where her grandmother and her mother were born and raised. And suddenly, apparently, while they were speaking, they're shouting from all sides. Sir, where do you think you're going? Hey, check yourself at once. What's your number? The ruckus breaks out, apparently, because a man, either by mistake or sneakiness, decides to step a little closer to the entrance. The police officers on duty manage to restore order, and everyone falls silent again, their eyes fixated at the front door. It's just a madhouse, says Marina, who traveled more than 60 kilometers, almost 40 miles down from Ravenki to submit her paperwork. In the two hours she and her husband have waited in the line, the office has admitted just 20 people. But Marina's husband, Vasily, says it's even worse back in their hometown. Only five applicants get through every hour. Five years ago, their daughter left for St. Petersburg. She later managed to get Russian citizenship and found a job. Her parents also want to move to Russia. They say there's nothing to do in the LNR. There is work, but the salaries, Marina complains. I'm an accountant and I get 5,000 rubles per month, about $77. Is that enough to pay for apartment, food and clothes? Our utilities alone are 2,000. She says people survive however they can in the unrecognized republic. The retirees collecting two pensions can still manage, and so can the miners. But here we are, unable to help our children and grandchildren.
Another commotion interrupts Marin's story, and the police narrowly avert a fight in the crowd. And are they open again tomorrow? A middle-aged woman asks her husband. They said to stay until the end, then they'll say about tomorrow. I hope, to God, they're open, so we can at least get inside. So what can we make, make from all of this? Well, about the last part, like I said, I want to go there and see on my own, and that's, that's what I'm going, flying there on the first. But about the refugees with um, FIFA IDs, well, that's really a sad study, and uh, makes you think. As much as we complain sometimes about how life is hard for us here in Eastern Europe, you know, there are places where it's far, far worse. And it's the attitude of, of everyone and about the, with the people and how people decide to help one another, and if they do it. And all these tales of, you know, trying to get citizenship, trying to move there, people are people everywhere. And the politics, politics around them, that's just a, you know, a sideline. That's, that's another whole another thing, because if you notice that these people who are trying to get the passports or, or stay in Russia, they're not there for political reasons, and they, well, for the most part, don't care. They're still people. That's why I wanted to tell you these stories, because that, that also is part of the eastern border. The fact that there are struggling people everywhere, and it's not just, not just the fact of refugee crisis, and a lot of people, you know, they complain about the terrorism increase and all these extremist stuff, but for the most part, you have to realize that studies like these and these people are not interested in committing acts of terrorism, they're just interested in surviving, as we all are. As we all are, and it makes you think But the fact that, you know, sometimes it doesn't really, doesn't really matter what's going on politically if you are just escaping from something. A lot to think about, especially since my own trip to Ukraine. A lot to think about, and, well, I hope you found this interesting. I'll definitely keep you updated, but, well, if you can help someone in need, be kind to them and help them. Because, you know, a lot of people helped me when I was in the United States and ran into trouble there. So it made me think a bit differently. Might make snarky comments on Facebook now and then, but all in all, helping one another and being humane, that's what matters the most, I think. But that's it for today. The next episode is going to come to you from Ukraine already. So, до свидания, товарищи. And I hope this episode gave you something to think about. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.